I'm glad you are coming to church in December here. It's uh, quite a month for us as a church as we've done our winter wonder this week and are finishing that up this afternoon. We've had literally thousands of people come to that our, our Christmas special and a lot of people don't usually come to church. And then, as you know, we uh, have Winter Fest coming up, as Corey mentioned, this Thursday night where there will be an estimated 2,000 kids that will come on campus here to play in the snow and eat and have a lot of fun. And it's just kind of our way of inviting people to consider uh, coming to our church. It's a low-key outreach event. And so uh, take advantage of those things. And then obviously, Christmas Eve services. There are a ton of people in culture, and you all know this, that, that only go to church on Christmas and Easter. I call them C&E Christians, you know, that they only come a couple times a year. I spent my childhood like that, and so we got two shots to minister to them. And so we have eight Christmas Eve services, uh, including two of them, or a few of them in our venue that's live right now with us in this worship service, as well as the Cactus Campus that is also live with us now in this worship service. They're having two Christmas Eve services uh, over there. So an incredible opportunity to, in December to invite people to church or to minister to people that, that you might not normally do so to. So please take advantage of that. And then we're wrapping up a series today, the I Am series out of Romans of just what is true about us as followers of Christ. And it's a bold title that I've given to today's sermon. If you think about it, I am at peace. How many of you could honestly say that? How many Christians can honestly say every day when you wake up, I am at peace? I think that's a great challenge to us as followers of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're going to talk about today, about how that can be true for you, even if it's not right now. So let's bow and pray. Cactus venue, let's bow and pray and ask God's blessing upon our time. Father, I thank you for just the body of Christ that we have here and over at Cactus and in the venue. And, and Lord, just the blessings you've given to us as a church that meets in multiple places even at multiple times. Lord, we're all bound together by Jesus Christ, our Savior, by the truthfulness of your word that we want to look at now. And so, Father, as we tackle this very bold subject of peace and what peace means to us today, each one of us personally, and then together as a body, I pray, God, that we might rightly understand your word and then apply it diligently to our lives. So, God, I thank you for our time together now, and I Pray you bless this time in your word. In Christ's name, amen. Well, you might have missed it. Most people did. But on June 14th, 2003, the famous Hatfield-McCoy feud was finally and completely declared over. It's true. The Associated Press declared that they more than the more than 100-year-old feud that started, by the way, with an argument over a pig and then led to the murder of over 12 people within the two families and eventually would even involve the Supreme Court. This feud between the two families was declared over in the summer of 2003. It was initiated by Rio Hatfield, the great-great-grandson of William Hatfield, and the official treaty calling for peace said this. It said, We do hereby informally declare an official end to all hostilities implied, inferred, and real between the families now and forevermore. It further said, We ask that by God's grace 
and his love that we be forever remembered as those that bound together the hearts of two families to form a family of freedom in America. The treaty was signed by all the major members of the two families and even witnessed and signed by the governors of Kentucky and West Virginia, who both declared that June 14th is now officially Hatfield-McCoy Reconciliation Day. And so you and I got to witness in our lifetime the end to a feud that just about everybody in America had, been, had heard of, a 100-year-old feud, the Hatfield and McCoys. And though there are lots of lessons that we learn from this highly charged historical story, like maybe the biggest one being don't kill someone when they steal your pig or something like that, the reality is, is that I think there's some spiritual lessons, there's some spiritual analogies that you and I can clearly and powerfully glean from this story. And it's contained in those very well-expressed words of the treaty. Let me read them for you again. Look up here on the screen. That say, we do hereby and formally declare an official end to all hostilities implied, inferred, and real between the families now and forevermore. An official end to all hostilities implied, inferred, and real. That's the spiritual analogy I need you to draw here. Because here's what the Bible says. And even people who haven't read much of the Bible know this to be true. The Bible says that there's a feud, a hostility between God and the humanity that he has created. That God created all human beings. He loves all human beings. He longs to be in relationship with all human beings. But we got a problem. And that is that our sin, our own choices to go a different way than God's has created a hostility between God and the humanity that he loves and he created. The Bible makes that really clear. That God loves this world, but we are separated from God in our sin. And so there's a hostility between God and this humanity he loves. And yet as you read on in the Bible, you also realize, however, that in Jesus Christ, we now have an opportunity to come back into a vital relationship with God through faith and trust in Christ and his death on a cross for our sins. And so as a result of all of this that the Bible makes clear, I believe that that statement of peace between the famous Hatfield and McCoys now becomes very indicative, if not right on, about what is now true between followers of Jesus and Almighty God that all hostility has ceased. There is no more feud or war between God and followers of Christ. Why? Because of what Christ did for us on the cross. So to use the word that we're going to use from this point on in our message today, there is now peace. If you brought a Bible, open up to Romans chapter 5. We're going to pretty much stay in Romans 5 and use some other scriptures to support this. But look at how Romans 5 verses 1 and 2 communicate this to us. If you didn't bring a Bible, look up here on the screen. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, here it is, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We have peace with God. In end, I would submit to you, to all hostilities implied, inferred, and real. And so here's our main point today. This is what you and I need to wrestle with. And that is that as a believer in Jesus Christ, you do now have peace with God. 
But you need to make it a lifelong pursuit then to have the peace of God ruling in your soul. That's what I want you to wrestle with. That Romans 5 makes it very clear that as a follower of Christ, you have peace with God. But now your main task in life is to have the peace of God ruling in your soul. And you're saying, what's that about? Well, let's break this down. Uh, First, let's talk very briefly about the peace that we have with God, because we've already made that pretty much clear. When it says there in Romans 5 that we now have peace with God, that word peace literally means in the original language that Romans was written in, the Greek language, it means, and I quote, the war is done. In other words, all hostility between God and you in Christ is now ended. Your sin no longer gets in the way between you and God. And so go back to the Hatfield and McCoy analogy. There is an official end to all hostilities implied and furred and real between God and you now and forevermore. That's what the Bible makes really clear. That in Christ, God has no more argument with you over your sin. He's now forgiven you completely and fully for everything that you've done, past, present, and future. That's why Jesus came, to die on a wooden cross in our place so that we might be forgiven. So I like how one old-time Bible commentator says it, commenting here in Romans 5. He says, and I quote, God has nothing against us, end quote. God's got nothing against us. He's now fully satisfied from any and all offense that our sin caused when it comes to him and us. If you don't believe me, look at how Romans 5 will go on to make this even more clear a few verses later in verses 10 and 11. Look up here on the screen. It says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. I like that. The reconciliation. We're now completely and fully reconciled to God. Peace with him is the name of the game, as far as he is concerned, when it comes to our relationship with him through Christ. And so it's an amazing truth that Romans 5 is laying out here. We have peace with God. But let me go back to what I said earlier before I prayed. Once you understand that in Christ you now have peace with God, what you need to wrestle with is why is it then, on a daily level, Monday through Saturday, as you try to walk with God, that there are many times you don't have peace? Have you ever wondered that? Why is it, if the Bible makes it so clear that you now have peace with God, that there are many times, if you're honest with yourselves, that as you go through your daily life, you don't feel that peace. You don't experience that peace. If I, as your pastor, was to catch you in one of your weaker or maybe even more normal moments and say, do you got peace right now? Are you feeling it? You'd be honest with yourself and say, no, I'm really not. And we got to ask ourselves, what's that about? Is the Bible lying? Is it not true? Is this just a pipe dream that Christians kind of say in some pious way that doesn't really meet our experience? Or is there something more? See, I think there's something more. Now listen close. Uh, One of the things the Bible makes clear is that there is a very subtle yet powerful distinction between what it calls this peace with God that we've been talking about and the peace of God 
that now you can have on a daily basis that's founded upon peace with God, but is a very different animal. In other words, as we've already established, you do have peace with God simply because you're a Christian. If you are in Christ, the Bible says, you now are at peace with God. You have to be, or you don't have a relationship with him. The feud is over. He's forgiven you. However, because sin does still exist in your life, because you still battle a sinful nature, read Galatians 5, it makes that very clear, there are going to be plenty of times that when you're battling sin, when you're battling the flesh, when you're living in this body of yours, that the peace of God isn't going to flow very much in your life, even though you have peace with God. And it's going to take a different set of tools than just doctrinally believing that you have peace with God in order for you to attain and have the peace of God. Do you see the distinction? This is very important. The Bible says one kind of peace is unconditional and permanent. It's yours because you're in Christ. But the other kind of peace is going to take a lot of soul work. And it's going to come and go depending on the kind of spiritual energy you're willing to put into your spiritual life. One kind of peace is what theologians call positional. It's yours because of your position in Christ. The other kind, however, is practical. It's going to come and go as you practice and live out your faith in your daily walk with God. One kind of peace is more objective. The other is more subjective. Are you seeing the distinction? Two kinds of peace that the Bible talks about, both very real peace with God that is yours in Christ and the peace of God that's going to be built on peace with God, but is a very, very different kind of peace. And so here becomes the key question once we've established this distinction, and that is that in the midst of financial worries that we all tend to have that can drag us down, and in the midst of emotions that we don't like, like depression, anxiety, fear, and confusion, and in the midst of intimate relationships that haven't become all that we thought they would be, and in the midst of circumstances like job loss and kids that rebel and sickness and death, how do we get the peace of God? That's what I want you to wrestle with. I mean, you do have peace with God if you're a Christian here today, but how do you have the peace of God riding in your soul with you along the way in life in the midst of all the things that you're going to battle in your daily world? And in our time remaining this morning, I want to suggest to you three things, because there's many of them, but just three things that the Bible says about our spiritual and relational lives that we can do that will start to develop the peace of God more in our souls and in our lives. And the first one that I want to share with you is the most critical one. It's all over the New Testament. It's been a spiritual practice of some of the great spiritual men and women down through the ages that they've all known is what will bring peace to our lives. And it's simply this, look up here on the screen, and that is that you need to train your soul to focus upon and rest in God. It's true. You need to train your soul to focus on and rest moment by moment daily in God. And I believe that the operative phrase here for most of us here today, for Cactus Campus, most of you, and for the venue, is that little phrase, train your soul. Because that's what most of us don't do very well. We need to teach our souls to stop resting and trusting in all the things that we tend to rest in and trust today 
that I'm going to show you are not the right things to rest and trust in. And we need to teach our soul how to rest and trust in God. But before we get to that, I want you to look with me at how the Bible makes this very clear that this is indeed the case that we need to learn to train our soul. But look at Romans 8, verse 6. It says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and, say it with me, peace. So isn't it interesting there? It's saying that the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. We know that our soul is simply the compilation of our feelings and our thoughts, our mind and our heart. So when it says there the mind that set on the spirit is peace, it's saying that the soul that learns to set itself on the Holy Spirit is going to have peace. And then check out Romans chapter 15, verse 13. It says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy, here it is, and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope peace in believing. Isn't it interesting? It's tying the peace that you and I are after in our souls with this idea of believing, of resting, of trusting in Jesus Christ. And then if you're still not convinced, look at this ever popular passage, Galatians 5 verse 22. We teach this to our kids in our kids program. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit, the result of the Holy Spirit in your life, is love, joy, say it with me, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. So the outcome of learning to live in the power of the Holy Spirit, of resting and trusting in God, moment by moment in your daily life, is going to be peace. Folks, it's all over the New Testament. Over and over again, the Scriptures tell us that those who focus on and rest in God are going to tend to have peace in the midst of even very difficult circumstances. You know, some of you know I, I, I tend to like country music. I, I know it's hard to believe looking at me because I'm in like a blue blazer and all that, but I, I, I do. And, and it's actually an anomaly to me that I like country music because I wasn't raised listening like to Merle Haggard or anything like that. I was raised listening to the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and Kiss and groups like that that now quite frankly, disgust me. So maybe that's why I went to country music, because I just tend to find Nashville maybe sometimes a little bit more holy than, than say, Kiss. I don't know. I just didn't like country music, because Nashville's pretty seedy as well. And so speaking of seedy, there's actually a country music star that some of you are aware of by the name of Travis Tritt. And, and like he is like an old-time rocker that turned country. He's got really long hair, and, and, and he, he's not like a poster child for morality or anything like that, you know. And, and in the early days when he was playing in some of the more seedy places in the South, he would write or say that, 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 that as you can imagine, they would be pretty rough places. And he'd be playing in the early days in these bars and places in the South, and fights would break out. And it would actually get very dangerous at times and even fear for his life. And he tells the story that when this would happen in the early days, he would do something that would immediately change the situation going on. Let me read for you what he says. This is actually very instructive for you and I. He says, Silent Night proved to be my all-time lifesaver. Just when bar fights started getting out of hand, when bikers were reaching for their pool cues and rednecks were heading for the gun rack, I'd start playing Silent Night. It could be in the middle of July, I didn't care. Sometimes they'd even start crying, standing there watching me sweat and play Christmas carols. Now can you imagine that? Being in a seedy bar, being kind of seedy yourself, 
playing all this new country stuff, and then a fight would break out, and immediately you tell the band to start playing Silent Night, and these bikers and rednecks would start to get tears in their eyes. Why is that? Well, I would submit to you that even in a situation like that, when people would focus on Jesus, because that's what Silent Night is, Silent Night, all is calm, all is bright, it's about the Son of God coming into the world, even in that moment, just for a brief moment, there was peace. And though that might be kind of a silly illustration for some of you, bear with me on this, because if that can happen in a bar in the South to a bunch of people that are not established Christ followers, then what does this say about you and I when we will pause regularly in our lives and focus on Jesus in our daily world? I mean, if that can happen there, then certainly in the midst of all the things that you and I go through as followers of Jesus Christ, if we will but focus upon him and train our soul to rest upon him, I'm guessing we could have peace. Oswald Sanders once said it this way, he says, peace is not the absence of trouble, it's the presence of God. And he's right. We think peace is good circumstances. It's not. It's God showing up in the middle of your circumstances and giving you a deep sense of his presence in your life. You see, that's why God wants you to train your soul to rest and trust in him, because he knows that if you can experience his presence in the midst of what you're going through, you're going to have peace. And the reason that that is so is because when Jesus walked this earth, every time he showed up into the middle of a difficult situation, his mere presence brought peace. So think about the birth narrative. A very difficult situation, no room in the inn, Mary and Joseph giving birth in, in very difficult situations. And yet when the shepherds are out in the fields, it says in Luke 2.14, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. So when the Son of God showed up that very first Christmas Eve, there was peace. Or how about when Jesus was healing some gal in Luke chapter 7, verse 50, it says, and Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Or how about after he was resurrected and the disciples were hiding out in the upper room and they were all scared and afraid and didn't know what was next and Jesus appeared to them and in John 20, verse 19, it says, Jesus came and stood in their midst and he said to them, peace be with you. Are you starting to see the connection? Like every time the Son of God shows up in a situation when he's on this earth, he brought with him a train of peace. It was just there with his presence. And so it only makes sense that if you and I can tap into his presence on a moment-by-moment, daily basis in our lives, then the peace of God is going to be with us. That's what God knows is true, and he longs for that for you. Because here's the deal. If you can train your soul to rest in God, I promise you, no matter what you go through, you're going to have peace. But this is where it gets really difficult, guys. Because the reality is, as I hinted to earlier, you and I tend to choose every day to rest on things other than God through Jesus Christ because we somehow think that they're going to give us peace. See, here's one thing we know about your soul. Your soul never exists in just suspended animation. Your soul is never in neutral. Your soul is always looking for some place to rest. Did you know that about yourself? I love it when people say, you know, I said to somebody, a penny for your thoughts. Well, I'm not thinking anything right now. Not true. You are. My, my kids used to always say, I'm not thinking anything. I'm like, yeah, you are. You're thinking something right now. 
And by the way, you're feeling something right now? <laughs> Someone say, yeah, I'm feeling like I want you out of my face. But you're feeling something right now? And, and, and my guess is inside where things matter most, you're trusting in something right now, right? Each moment of each day. And think about all the things that you've trained your soul to trust in. If you're a good American, you've trained your soul to trust in yourself. I believe in crystal light because I believe in me. L'Oreal, because I'm worth it. Have it your way at Burger King. I mean, think of all the messages you grew up with. You have trained your soul really well to trust in you. You pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You make your own decisions. You're your own man, your own woman, and you've trained your soul to trust in you. My problem is God says, how's that gone for you in giving you peace? Has that worked really well for you? And you go, well, not really, God, but it's gotten me through some of the difficult times. Yeah, you've gotten through, and now you've realized that trusting yourself might get you through something, but you have no peace. And then there's others of you who have learned really well to trust in others. Again, we live in an entitlement generation, so you focus outward. You trust in Oprah and PBS specials, and you trust in the welfare system, and you trust in education, and you trust in society. All these good things, you trust in others really well. And again, God says to you, okay, that's all good and fine. Has that given you peace? You say, not really. And then others of us trust in things. It's like the American way, right? You get anxious, you get nervous, go to eBay. You want to get that next fix? Go to Craigslist. Christmas time is wonderful for you because you get to shop and research and do all these things and you don't even realize it. What are you doing when you do all that? You're training your soul to trust in these things. They're not bad things. But you're training your soul to trust in yourself, others, things. And then you wonder why you don't have peace. And God comes along and he says, you got to retrain your soul to trust in me. Do an audit. Do an inventory. Ask yourself, Monday, say at 1.30 tomorrow, set your alarm and ask yourself, right now in this moment, when that alarm goes off, what am I trusting in? What, honestly, what am, I, am I really trusting in God right now? Or am I trusting in others, myself, this world? See, see, we trust in other things more so than we would ever realize. And God simply comes along and says, trust in me. Have no fear, trust in me. And that will give you peace. C.S. Lewis always had a wonderful way of putting things. Very simple yet profound. Look up here on the screen. I like this analogy he gives. This will relate. Especially you car guys will like this. He says, a car is made to run on gasoline. And it would not properly run on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. He says that's why it's just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about faith. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it's not there. There is no such thing. I love that last line. I put it there for you in yellow. Hopefully, venue and cactus, you see it as well. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself. Because without the presence of Jesus, without the presence of God in our lives, there is no peace. And so I love how Eugene Peterson, in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, says it. Again, I got the quote for you up on the screen. This is great. He says, the Christian life is about going to God. In going to God, Christians travel the same ground that everyone else walks on, 
We breathe the same air, drink the same water, shop in the same stores, read the same newspapers, are citizens under the same government, pay the same prices for groceries and gasoline, fear the same dangers, are subject to the same pressures, get the same distresses, are buried in the same ground. The difference is that each step we walk, each breath we breathe, we know we are preserved by God. We know that we are accompanied by God, and we know we are ruled by God. Amen? Amen. And yet some of you go, ooh, I'm not sure I always believe that. And therein lies the difference. See, the only difference between you and your neighbor that might not walk with Jesus is that by you walking with Jesus, you're going to trim the same Christmas tree. You're going to shop at the same stores. You're going to have a lot of the same traditions. You're going to work the same job. You're going to drive similar cars. You're going to save in the same 401k manner that you save. But you do so as one walking with God through Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that's the difference. And that difference alone, even though you have similar circumstances to your neighbor, is the one that brings peace. And I know how some of you think. You're thinking, well, well, how do I do that? I mean, how do I walk with God? How do I train my soul, Jamie, to learn to rest in Him? (laughs) I'm glad you asked that because now maybe you understand why when I ask you to do certain things in your daily life or when the Bible asks you to do certain things, it asks you to do those things. You're saying like what? Well, like reading the Bible every day. By having a prayer life in which you spend concentrated time learning to pray to God. Or how about when we ask you to be in a Bible study or a small group and don't forsake fellowshipping to other believers, but have the guts to get into a small group and tell your story to other believers. Why do you think we ask you to do that? Or how about serve with your gifts and passions? Give in a generous way. All the disciplines that we talk about as a church that the Bible talks about, why do you think we ask you guys to do those things? Because we don't think you're busy enough? Of course not. We know you're busy. It's just that those are the things that for thousands of years now have created followers of Jesus who know how to walk with God, experience His presence on a moment-by-moment basis, and over time give them peace. When someone taught me how to read the Bible on a daily basis and glean truth from it, and they taught me how to pray and talk to God and keep a list and and have a prayer list and check it to see if it's getting answered, and they taught me how to relate to other believers even when it's difficult and to walk with them and be in a men's group and with Kim in a couple's group, and when they taught me how to serve with my gifts and passions and give generously with what God has blessed me to in an obedient way, when people taught me how to do that, I started to walk with God. And in walking with God, over time, I started to develop peace. But here's the problem. Here's how many of us function. We tend to live very self-sufficient lives, not doing any of those things except maybe coming to church. We live self-sufficient lives, and then a crisis hits. And tell me if this is true. When the crisis hits, we then grab the Bible, and we open it up like to anywhere because we're not really familiar with it. And, you know, we open it up, and we go, okay, God, speak to me. And it says, and Judas hung himself. That's not encouraging. Let me find another spot. So we then find another spot in the Bible, and we say, okay, God, speak to me. And then, you know, we really don't get much out of it. And so then we say, okay, I'll become an usher. And so we serve three weeks as an usher, and that doesn't seem to do it. And then we go, well, I guess God just doesn't work. I guess the spiritual life doesn't work. And you sit there and go, really, that, that's it? That, that's, that's how you approach God? For years on end, you live a self-sufficient life without really learning through, the, through difficult times to walk with him and find him and trust him 
to develop an unwavering faith in him and then three weeks into a crisis you say, well, I guess God is not real? Would you treat any other relationship like that? I don't think you would. One of my best friends in Cleveland, I think I've shared this before, you died right when I came here to Scottsdale. He was my his associate pastor of the church that I served at. He was there for 30 years. I was only there for six. And uh, he was an icon in the Chagrin Valley. Everybody knew him. His name was Doug and just a real servant behind the scenes. He ran our missions program. He ran the administration of the church and just a, more of an introvert, but just a wonderful, wonderful man. And 1998, Doug got diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And over the next decade, he lived actually a decade with it, but just developed tumors all over his body. And he went to be the Lord in, in 2007. In 1998, when he first got diagnosed with this, they did a very aggressive procedure. I think it was a stem cell transplant in which he was in the hospital for weeks on end as they depleted his body of these stem cells and then injected them back into him. And, and to make a long story short, it did not end up working. And so he ended up battling cancer for the next eight, nine years. He told me a story that during that time when he was in the hospital, that because of the treatment that they gave him, he experienced a level of depression and a level of loneliness, a level of physical depletion and emotional depletion, unlike anything he'd ever experienced in his life. He said, Jamie, there were times in the hospital where I was so low, I just didn't even want to live anymore. He said, I felt like 2 Corinthians 1, where Paul the Apostle says, I despaired even life itself. He said, I just, I just wanted to go home. Some of you have felt like that. And then Doug, Doug was a very emotional man. He'd get a tear in his eye, and he'd say, but you know, in, in the midst of that time, lower than any other time I felt, he said, I, I experienced the presence and the power of God. Just very alone there in the hospital. Visitors didn't do it. The nurses didn't do it. But in my lowest moments, I could sense God's presence with me. And he said it was so real and so profound. At another time, as Doug and I were processing that, he said to me another profound thing. He said, you know, I don't know this for an empirical fact. He said, but... I think the reason that I was able to experience the presence of God in part when I was going through that was because for 50 years, I'd had a quiet time every day. He said, for 50 years, I, 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 I'd spend time in the Word and learn to pray. Doug was raised in a Christian home and then became a pastor. He said, for 50 years, I had all these quiet times. And many times I get to an end of a quiet time and I would think, well, that was a wash. I get to the end of a quiet time and no sparks, no fireworks, no nothing like maybe a little bit more doctrinal knowledge, but kind of quietness. That's what he had, quiet time. It was quiet. He said, but then when I needed God the most, in the time of my deepest need, I had trained my soul how to focus on him. I had trained my soul how to sense and experience his presence. See, when Doug shared that with me, that moved me. Because I thought, have I trained my soul how to do that? Have I trained my soul over the years to tap into, to experience God's presence? I think in some ways I have, but back when Doug shared this with me almost a decade ago, I said, I need to keep on that road. Because there are times when I'm going through difficult times and I don't sense his presence. There are times as a pastor where I'm just going through the motions and I'm doing all the right things, but inside I'm dry. And I'm not really relating to God and I'm skipping the old quiet time and I'm not in the word and I'm not praying like I should and I'm not being honest in my small group and in fellowship. And there are times where even as a pastor, I can do that for months on end. And I'm not training my soul, I'm not doing my soul any good 
by trying to fake it till I make it. No, it takes more work than that. It takes a lot more spiritual energy than that. It, it takes staying in the ring with God, learning day by day to tap into his presence so that when I need him most, my soul knows what to do. Dr. Paul Reiser, who's an outspoken Christian physician, puts it this way. I like this quote. He says, at some point in life, we must ask ourselves, is contentment created internally or is it the result of how things are going? Is contentment created internally, meaning are you making choices each day as you follow Christ to have your contentment based upon him or, like so many people, is your contentment going to be dictated by how things are going on the outside? Because that's our world system. Is that your contentment is based on whether the economy is up or not, whether or not you got a good job or not, whether or not your family's life is going well, whether or not your relationships are going well, your contentment is based on how your kids are doing, whether they're rebelling or not. And though all those things are very important, what the Bible says is that you can have the peace of God in the midst of all of that stuff. God might not change your circumstances, but he can give you a sense of himself that will make all the difference. But you have to train your soul to rest and trust in him. Now, more quickly, because we have just a few minutes left, let me spark your thinking even further by sharing with you again, much more quickly, two other truths that the Bible tells us that are also key to getting and experiencing the peace of God. So here's the second one. This is going to shock some of you. You're not going to like this, but I'm telling you, this is a good pill to swallow. It's true, and that is to get the peace of God, you've got to live a life of obedience to God. So believe it or not, there is a behavioral component to having the peace of God. And the reason that this is important to mention is that so far we've talked about all internal things. That if your internal life is well, then you can have the peace of God. But the Bible also says that, that you need to have a lifestyle of ongoing, confessed, dealt with sin in your life. In other words, you respond to your sin in a godly way in order for the peace of God to rule in your soul. You're saying, really? Where's that? Philippians 4 verse 9. It says, what you have learned and received and heard in me, practice these things. Now here it is. And the God of, say it with me, peace will be with you. So you practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And though I don't have time to read it, James chapter 3, verses 16 through 18 says the same thing. It links, links righteousness with peace. And I'm not talking about perfection here. I'm not talking about being a legalist here. I'm simply noting, and we all need to recognize this, is that if you live a life of unconfessed, undealt with, unchecked sin, don't ask God why you don't have peace. Because the reality is you can do all the internal work you want, but if you're not willing to follow him obediently, then there's a link between that and not having peace. And so when you humbly admit and confess and own and even repent of your sin, the Bible says that's going to bring more peace to your life. And then lastly, notice me a third way the Bible says we can attain the peace of God. And this one will not surprise any of us, but it is really important. And that is you need to pursue peace with others. Boy, is this one going to be important at Christmas time with family functions and things like that. Amen? You need to pursue peace with others. So again, it's eminently biblical. Look at Romans 14, 19. It says, so then let us pursue what makes for peace. And what is that? The mutual upbuilding of each other. 
And then if you're not convinced, look at 2 Corinthians 13, 11. This is really clear. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Here it is. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Ooh. So like there's a causal correlation between the God who gives peace, giving you peace, and you living in peace with those around you. And so again, that's just very important for us to recognize that we might have awesome quiet times and we might even be living wonderfully obedient lives, but if we're, willing to be un- if we're not willing to be forgiving to those around us and let it go and live at peace with them, then we're going to be robbed of some peace in our souls. And that just makes sense, right? So I'm telling you, man, you guys have such an opportunity to put this into action at Christmas time. Because I hear so many stories at Christmas. Oh, I got to go to Aunt Berta's house and I'm going to see Cousin Agnes and I hate her guts. Really, you're a Christian. I hate her guts and I don't want to be with her and she drives me crazy. And then I hear people, you know, come to me, Pastor, I got this real problem. Here you see, my, my wife wants to go to this family and I want to go to this family. And, you know, my, they, they give me a hard time. And, and I sit there and go, well, I don't know. The Bible says that you're supposed to be the one that forgives, lets it go, not makes a big deal of this. But, you know, does anybody ever want to hear that? No. People come to me and I say that to them. They look like I'm an idiot. They look at me like my teenagers look at me, you know. And I sit there and go, I got nothing else for you. You want my opinion? That's what the Bible says. You're supposed to be the man. You're supposed to be the woman in this situation. You're supposed to be the Christ follower that lets it go. And what God says is that if you're willing to do that, he'll give you some peace. He'll give you peace in your spirit. But as long as you demand your rights, as long as you demand that, you know, hey, it's only fair. You know, don't you love that? It's only fair. Well, okay, it's only fair, and you can live with your justice and then go to bed with some anxiety in your soul. God says you can have peace if you're willing to live at peace with those around you. So here's our wrap-up. I love this. This is really cool. Uh, Peace with God is guaranteed. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have come to believe and trust in him, the Bible says that if your heart stops ticking today, if you up and die today and you go go before the throne, he's going to say, I got peace with you. I got peace with you. My son's blood covers all of your sin. Enter into your rest. Isn't that cool? Peace with God is guaranteed. However, the peace of God, and here's the promise, and this should encourage you, is available to you. It's available to you. If you train your soul to rest in God, if you live an obedient life, if you pursue peace with other people, those are things that the Bible says that will allow you to experience the peace of God in your life. And it's that available to you if you choose to do that. And then when it comes to peace with this world, because everybody talks about peace with this world, it's possible. If people get together and Christians make a dent in this world and we allow the peace with God and the peace of God to permeate our culture, then it's possible. But it's not always going to happen. So my question for you as we wrap this up, we're just out of time here, is what are you pursuing this Christmas season? What are you pursuing? You got a choice. You can pursue gifts and cards and parties and your rights and all these things. Or you can pursue peace that God offers to you in and through your relationship with him that no matter what happens to you this holiday season, he can give you peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all that you give to us and for the amazing um, blessings that we have in Christ. 
And God, I pray that as we've been looking in this series at all the things that we are because of our relationship with Christ, that we are children of God, that we are chosen by God, that we are saved by God, and that we can now have peace with God, I pray, God, that these would be things that we pursue, that these would be the first place most important things in our lives. And Father, I pray for all of us here today that as we chew on these things this week, as we talk about them, hopefully, uh, maybe at a, at a dinner conversation or at a Bible study, as we chew on these things, that God, you would not allow us to rest until we find our rest in thee, until we learn and train our souls to find the peace of God that you have for us. God, thank you that you can offer that to each one of us here today. Thank you for your amazing grace. And thank you for this season that focuses us on your son, Jesus Christ, and his birth. And we pray these things only and always in his name. And the whole church says together, amen. God bless you. We'll see you guys next week.